The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. I'm so happy that you're here with us. Listen, our guest today has been featured by the New York Times, Good Morning America, and Oprah. He is a renowned for his documentary TV series on A&E that followed his groundbreaking work with youth and families. He's the author of the national bestseller, The Grown-Up's Guide to Teenage Humans, and completed his postgraduate studies at Harvard. That's right, Josh Shipp is in the house today. Listen, Josh is someone with a very compelling story. I was moved to tears throughout this interview today. I'm so glad you get to hear his story and hear about the wonderful work that he is doing. And Enneagram Counterphobic 6. That's right, Counterphobic 6. You're going to love this interview, folks. Strap in, get ready, here we go. And now, your host, Ian Cron. Josh Ship, Enneagram Counterphobic 6. Welcome to Typology. Here I am, a counterphobic six and not afraid to admit it. Good. <laughs> That's, we're off to a good start. Or at least you have the courage to admit it. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, you were saying before we started recording that many, not all, counterphobic six are, are a little hesitant to admit such. Well, I mean, look, it has to do with the relationship between fear and aggression in the counterphobic six. And I'm, we'll talk about this as you... I want you first to tell me how you arrived at the conviction that you're a counterphobic six, actually how you discovered the Enneagram, all that stuff. Just give us a 50,000 square foot view of all that. When I first stumbled across the work of the Enneagram, it was by reading your book. And then because of reading that book, I went to a seminar that was hosted at our church. It was hosted by the discipleship pastor, David Kim wrote this great book called Made to Belong about community and isolation and all of those things. And he started out the seminar. Now, this this guy's a friend of mine. He's in my men's Christian accountability group. I've been in 20 years. You can imagine someone who's counterphobic six letting, you know, a small group of people for that long, that deeply into their life for that period of time. So he later told me that he always started his Enneagram seminars by addressing the Enneagram 8s, because he could start off with a bang, sort of very boldly proclaiming the positives and the challenges of that type, and that typically the Enneagram 8 wouldn't mind. And so as he was going through certainly the positives, but more so the negatives, as I was thinking about my own blind spots, my own weaknesses, I thought, I am undoubtedly an 8. I mean, 
you know, my motto is like clear is kind. My emails are five sentences long, never any more than that. I set meetings at 9.03 a.m., not 9 a.m. My wife would describe me, <laughs> she said this once and made me laugh and then sort of cry, often wrong, never uncertain. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, as I was reading through, I, I thought, undoubtedly, I must be an eight because that sort of just candid frankness, directness, not afraid to have a difficult conversation, actually energized by it. But my friend David helped me see that, you know, when you think about the three triads, right, head, heart, and gut, that the Enneagram eight is in the gut triad. And all of my sort of calculation or aggressiveness or assertiveness not only was it not from the, I mean, it was highly calculated, premeditated, thought through, analyzed, split tested, all of that. So all of that, it's almost more like I navigate my life as a skeptical chess player, you know, analyzing, considering 13 maneuvers, mm-hmm. making one based on your reaction to that chess move then I analyze the next 13 potential moves and onward. Okay. Well, now you're convincing me a little bit more that you are a counterphobic six. Again, I'm not saying that I had any doubts. It's just, you know, I'm just sort of teasing it out a little bit. For sure. Do you, are all those behaviors you just mentioned motivated at some level by anxiety or fear? So... I mean, prior to a couple of years ago, I would not have said they were motivated by anxiety, but that was primarily because I had a false definition in my mind of what anxiety is. Mm -hmm. To me, I viewed anxious people as people when confronted with a challenge, buried their head in the sand, retreated, got small. Instead of flipping out, they would flip in. And so when, when I was defining anxiety in that way, I go, that, like, that ain't me at all. And so I, I think so many of those behaviors, for me, are motivated by anxiety. And, you know, my counselor would say that sort of the through line in my life, because of how I grew up, and I know we'll get to that in a moment, is the fear of being left mm-hmm. or the fear of being unwanted or the fear of someone else letting me down. Mm-hmm. And so I think the anxiety of that repeating itself right. mm-hmm. is, is how that shows up for me, those calculated mm-hmm. maneuvers. Yes. So the counterphobic six typically is, well, let me put this sixes have a profound need for safety, security, and certitude, right? They like, mm-hmm. they have a lust at times for certitude, right? Yes. Now, yes. The phobic six, their fixation, their deadly sin is fear. And for the phobic six, they know they're fearful. They know they're anxious. They are in touch with their anxiety. If you say to a phobic six, you know, when you describe a six and you talk about anxiety, phobic sixes will nod their heads. Yes, I know I am an anxious person. I know I'm always getting ready for the worst. And, you know, it's all anxiety. Yes. Now, a phobic six actually is not aware that fear usually is the driver in their lives, right? Mm. In fact, they're not in touch with the fear Mm -hmm. until they've done some work like you have and you've done some self-reflection. But your typical not very self-aware 
counterpoetic six doesn't know they're afraid, right? Mm. They feel like eights and they will mm. often peg themselves as eights. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But think of it this way. The phobic six is a freeze type, right? In the face of fear, they freeze. A counterphobic six in the face of something they fear, fight. Mm-hmm. Like yes. they, they go against it. And sometimes yes. a counterphobic six will actually poke the bear. Oh, yes. You, do you know oh, what, yes. <laughs> oh what, do, what do you mean? Do you know what I mean? What do you mean? Do, do you know what I mean? I'm going to poke you for saying something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they poke the bear to, as they almost get a that preemptive act. They, yeah. they get information. They preemptively yeah. get the bear to be aggressive and then they take it down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think I would, I think I would poke the bear, retreat to the woods get a scope, calculate, and then snipe the bear. <laughs> From a distance. Yeah. For, for, those of, for those of you that are only listening to the podcast, it, 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 Ian's face, he's very startled right now, yes. <laughs> no, man, I think that's fantastic. And I think you're giving oh. our people a really good sort of yeah. picture that they've not had before of, of counterphobic sixes. Again, because... We just haven't had a ton on. You know, we get a lot of phobic sixes, but not a lot of counterphobic sixes. Yeah, as well, soon as well, you said that, I wanted to say, ring the bell. Ding, 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 ding. Yes. Counterphobic yes. six. Yes. Nailed. Well, let me, let me walk you through my background, and I think maybe that'll add another sort of layer to this. Mm-hmm. So my biological mother was 17 when she became pregnant with me. I uh, grew up outside of Oklahoma City. She left me at the hospital when I was born. Literally several hours after giving birth to me, packed up her belongings, it slipped out the side door. Um, interestingly, the very same thing was done to her by her mother. Mm. And so very early on in my life, you know, when I'm entering the foster care system, the, the through line ringing through my mind is don't trust other adults. They too are going to slip out the side door on you. They too are going to wash their hands of you, give up on you, walk out on you. So... The day I was left, I was an infant. So, I, you know, I didn't quite yet have that chip on the shoulder or the sort of calculation that I'll tell you about in just a moment. But as, as early as four or five years old, I recall getting a notebook. And in that notebook, I would keep a statistical analysis of the date I entered the foster home, the date I got kicked out of the foster home, and the methodology that I employed. Mm. My mindset at that time was push them away before they get rid of me. And then the different, you know, trauma, abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse that I went through only further reinforced that false belief in my head that adults are not to be trusted, adults are not to be counted on, adults are not to be let in. And that just furthered that cycle for me of any adults, and many of these foster parents were great pe- people, many of the counselors, phenomenal people. Yeah. I mean, you were in 14 foster homes, am I right? Yes. Wow. And I, I, I mean, I could get myself kicked out as quickly as about 14 days. And how did, Okay, so tell me how you did that and why. Well, again, I sort of already said, was you know, that, that fear or anxiety of my life was once uncontrollable, it will never be uncontrollable again. Mm-hmm. You will not be in charge here. I will be in charge here. I will take this home hostage because I'm afraid if you're in charge of it, that you're going to hurt me, that you're going to leave me, mm-hmm. that you're going to mm-hmm. abandon me. 
So, so how I would do it is I would, you know, quietly, like I said, run into the woods, snipe the bear. I would, I would quietly for a few days analyze, look for tension points between the husband and wife that brought me into their home. Anything that, when brought up, was sort of quickly hushed down. Any sort of peculiarities, inconsistencies, incongruencies that I could identify as a weak spot, and I would exploit that just repeatedly and relentlessly until the point where they would say, look, we wanted to help out, but we didn't sign up for the." I mean, it could be find, you know, beloved family possessions, setting them on fire. So sort of a shock and awe technique or just, you know, relentless sort of emotional cruelty of saying, you, you only brought me in here so I could be another DHS check mm. with these other foster kids you got in there. Mm. And I would say that because I would once hear the foster mother say, you know, we're really in this because we care about these kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, I know some people take these kids in for the money, but I'm really in this for this. And so I thought, uh-huh. And so, th- you know, this was my pattern from three, four, five years old up until 14 years old. And at 14, I moved in with what I thought would just be sort of the next log in the notebook, the next set of parents that... I would move in and quickly, you know, unfurl a sequence of events and get kicked out. And three years later, I was still with that family. And that was the longest I had been in a home Mm -hmm. for quite some time. And regardless of how much I pushed back and acted out and acted up, they wouldn't get rid of me. They wouldn't kick me out. They would punish me. They would draw a boundary. There would be a consequence, but they never gave up. And that sort of their relentlessness and their certainty and stability in the midst of my chaos and emotional flailing finally worn, wore me down to the point I said, okay, I'm done fighting with this family. Mm-hmm. This family's for real. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You know, uh, sixes typically have a very strange relationship with authority figures. Really mm-hmm. strange. Mm-hmm. More than any other type. And part of it is has to do with that safety and security thing. You know, a phobic six looks at an authority figure and submits to it because they're like, that person holds the key to my safety and security. So I'm going to submit. And actually, I might even ingratiate myself with that person. Mm. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to be compliant. I'm going to bring an apple and put it on their desk. I'm going to, you know what I mean? I'm going to, I'm going to, oh, you want me to get Boy Scout medals? Okay, I'm going to do that. So long as you keep reassuring me that if you know what goes sideways, you will take care of me and I will be safe and secure and certain, right? Counterphobic six in their relationship to an authority figure rebels instead of submits, (laughs) okay? And that's what you're describing here. You have these foster parents, they're authority figures, You are immediately suspicious of them, which is a very common counterphobic six kind of way of seeing the authority figure, right? They're suspicious. They're a little cynical. They're like, oh, man, what are you going to try and do to pull the wool over my eyes? You know, and it's a little bit, they're just, uh, and they're tortured a little bit about authority figures, right? Yes. So what they do, as I said, is they rebel 
like we, we talked about it earlier, they poke the bear. They want to know, are you trustworthy? And so yes, it, yes. It's, it's very, as you described, it can be very aggressive. And of course, you're blending in here all kinds of significant trauma. Mm-hmm. Do you think these experiences contributed to your emerging with a counterphobic six personality style? I mean, I would imagine that it contributes significantly mm-hmm. because, you know, when you said a six is trying to identify, are you trustworthy? You know, I think mm-hmm. part of my pushing back was I identified trustworthiness as, are you going to not leave me? You know, when I look back on the first, I went to, I went to jail at 17 and a half years old. I wrote a bunch of hot checks. This is one of the ways in which I acted out. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a clean break for Rodney and Christine, this final set of parents I'm talking to you about. I thought, well, here's their off-ramp. Surely this will push them to the breaking point. And I remember when I, I woke up in that jail cell that night, I, I looked out, there was this little window there, and I looked out expecting to see my social worker, Patsy, and that she was going to pick me up, take me to the next home. But I remember standing there in the front of the line, the very front of the line, uh, was my foster dad, Rodney. And I think that was the moment where my walls came down. I think that is the moment where that question, are you trustworthy, for me was answered. Because the way I define trustworthy, and admittedly, as you mentioned, with with some unique and severe childhood baggage and trauma, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way I identified or defined trustworthiness was are you going to not give up on me? Are you not going to give up on me when I show you what I'm capable of mm-hmm. and when I show you all my ugliness and all of my past and all that I've been through and everything you didn't cause and wasn't your fault, but now you're going to be dealing with the fallout of? Can you handle all of that? And all the previous homes, of course, said yes, and I think many of them meant it, but, but this family proved it. To me, and again, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but maybe being in the head triad, it's like I, I needed a data point from the head. Mm-hmm. I needed a data point where I could look back and say, you know, this thing I did to piss him off, this thing I did that was cruel, this thing that was twisted and awful, this thing. Mm-hmm. And I look back and I see, you know, n- not emotions, but I see a series of data points where they could have gotten rid of me and no one would have blamed them, and they didn't. To me, that answered that question definitively. Yeah. So beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an interesting, I'm not quite sure I know how to say this articulately, but I actually think that we adopt our personality type as a way to avoid not getting hurt again, not re-experiencing the first primary wound in our life, right? So, If you're a one on the Enneagram and your primary wound has to do with feeling that if I'm not perfect, if I'm not good, then I will not be loved. That is a huge message you pick up as a little person. Then you will adopt the Enneagram one's personality style to make sure you never re-experience the pain of that initial wound, right? Yes. And you can see this in your story right? It's like, I am going to keep riding this thing until someone comes along and wears you down with stability, predictability, and of course, love, and with a refusal to give up on you. Very powerful. Yeah. 
I remember talking to my my foster parents who I still keep in touch with to this day. You know, they're, they're the heartbeat of the work that I do now. I, you know, work with kids like me. My belief from that experience is that every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. Uh, and that's not just my story. The evidence bears it out. There's really fascinating research that Harvard did at the National Scientific Council on the Developing Child. But I remember talking to them as as I became a father, and I said, "Why did you guys like? Why did you do it? Like, what what were you thinking throughout that whole time?" And my mom said her motto to herself was, "We just have to be one percent more hard headed and stubborn than he is, <laughs> and eventually, he's going to relax. Eventually, he's going to let us in. I mean, that next morning when they." bailed me out of jail. I feel like that was the moment where, that was the only moment I can remember at that age. So I'm 17 and a half at that point. Finally looking inward and saying, okay, I know my mom left me at the hospital and that's terrible and no kid should go through that. But this nonsense I've been doing, that ain't my mama's fault. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing that. I've been... Yeah. I've been letting people down. I've been cruel to people. I've been ungrateful to people who have opened up their homes and tried to do nothing but but help this messed up kid who didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So, so that moment, I feel like, and their beautiful dichotomy of being tough and tender helped me cognitively and emotionally shift responsibility outward to inward and then say, okay, I'll accept help. Okay, mm. I'll go to counseling. Okay, all that stuff you've been trying to shove on me that I've either written off as hippie nonsense or a waste of my time or something I don't need. Okay, I'll give that a try because I think some of this stuff is going on in my life is actually my fault. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds a lot like what happens in a 12-step recovery program when you do your fourth and fifth steps. You know, the fourth step is making a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. It's like looking at your crap. And then step five is admitting to God, to yourself, and to another human being the exact nature of your wrongs, right? It doesn't mean that everything that happened to you was your fault. It just means that we all participate at some level in it. You know what I mean? Like you might say, well, you know, how, how am I responsible for my mom leaving me in a hospital? Well, you're not, except that you might have been using that experience as an excuse for really crappy behavior later on in life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's the hard work of owning stuff. And then, which is, but it's a critical part of being able to move on from it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. All yeah. right. So as in any, we're going to get to your work and we are actually already in it, but as an counterphobic six, you mentioned you're in therapy and I love to ask people this question. What is it over the years or that you're working on right now that you're, you really had trouble shaking? Well, I mean, is are we going to make this a three-hour episode? I mean, come on. Um, well, my, you know, I've come to realize counseling is not for the broken; it's for the breathing. I thought, you know, it was something for so long that I uh, shoved aside and thought I didn't need. And interestingly, as a forty-one-year-old adult now, I have the same counselor that I did at seventeen and a half after mm. I got out of jail. Wow. Um, that's unusual. And he knows all my tricks. He knows all of it. The thing that's that's tricky right now that's very fascinating to think of how not only my counterphobic six nature, but also my childhood contributes to is this. You can imagine the way I grew up and then becoming a father that my goal is to bring safety, stability, 
and certainty to my kids. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have two kids, 11 and 13. My son, he's the 13-year-old. He's very sweet, very kind, very sensitive. When he faces a problem, he'll often cry. He'll often kind of shut down. And often when I see him do that, it makes me even angrier at him. Mm. And so as I was talking to my counselor, Dr. Harrison, about this, and I said, what's going on there? You know, he, you know, he's facing a thing, and then he, he kind of deals with it by expressing his emotion, and then I just like flip out on him. What's going on there? He said, your son is an example right in front of you of the very sort of childhood you wish you had but did not have, which is a childhood in which you could be sensitive, vulnerable, and express your emotions. So even though on one hand, that's the very thing you want to provide for your son, on the other hand, by providing it, it's unintentionally sometimes triggering those moments in your childhood and almost a, uh, this next word just sounds so terrible to say out loud, but almost a jealousy Mm -hmm. that uh, like, oh, how nice for you that you grow up in a home and an environment in which you have the luxury of being able to cry. I couldn't cry when I was eight. I couldn't cry when I was 11. I couldn't cry mm-hmm. when I was 13. I was having you know, to forge for myself. And so it, even though I've done hundreds of hours of counseling and in many ways feel you know, healed and stable, there are those occasional things that, that snipe me as well mm-hmm. that I go, what is this and where is that coming from? Yeah, when I mean, we have these sort of disproportionate emotional moments, that confuse us. You can, I can almost guarantee you that it's born out of trauma. It's unresolved trauma. And you, and it's just, you're like confused. Like, cause it, because the trauma is not actually in the moment it's in the history. So we don't, mm-hmm. we're like, what mm-hmm. is it? Like it's not happening in this moment, you know? So it's some kind of an echo mm-hmm. um, experience from our past, you know, some kind of an emotional triggering echo, you know, yes. that's hard for us to deal with. Can I ask a question about that before you just sure. on, before you move on, Ian? Get in there. Uh, I just this is kind of one of the things that struck me. So, fear, the impairment of fear, it leads to a need to control. You talked about that, and the six has this special relationship with fear. And so, I was thinking, you know, how does that work itself out in your world now? What is it that you feel a need to control? And then you told the story about your son. And it just made me wonder if some of that wasn't maybe anger, but maybe fear, because there was maybe a desire to control the situation uh, of whatever his experience was. So that, that's sort of a couple questions in one. But the, I guess the bigger question is, where do you feel the need to exercise control? Where do you see the in your life where it's like, oh, this is maybe not a good thing? For uh, sure. Yeah. Well, let me speak to your follow-up about my son. I think... Yes, I think I viewed in retrospect that moment as fear, mm-hmm. but more so my fear was, oh no, to navigate this world, mm. which that part of my brain still views as hostile, everyone's out to get you, everyone's out to leave you, disappoint you, mm-hmm. drop the ball on you, like this won't work out there. Right. This ain't going to get you through life. And so my fear in the moment is like, oh, I have not prepared him, not for the reality of the world, which 
mostly good people, some evil people, some just annoying people, and that's fine. Find your people. Yeah. But the worldview in which I still, at my core, think is out there, I think that is the fear for me. And, you know, my counselor has just encouraged me to, you know, not address those things in the moment to say, hey, can we talk about this tomorrow to put some space in between it so that I can regulate my emotions and view it a bit more sober-mindedly and to be transparent with my son. Hey, when you cried like that, I got a little angry and fearful Mm -hmm. and here's why. Here's why dad is sometimes can be like that. And here's, you know, here's what it doesn't mean. Mm -hmm. And and here's what it does mean. What do you think about that? And we have, uh, you know, beauty. Sometimes he just roasts me, you know, about that I can be a dick sometimes. (laughs) And and then other times we have these beautiful, poignant, deep father-son conversations. So being afraid Uh, for him in that situation. Yeah. That's why it's triggering, Anthony, Mm -hmm. is it's both I'm afraid for him Mm -hmm. and I'm jealous that you got the luxury of being able to do this thing that I never (laughs) got as a kid. So it's like, great. The worst of both worlds. Appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. All right, man. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the work you're doing now. And um, I think our folks will be fascinated to, Mm -hmm. to hear about it. All right. So I spent the first decade of my career being a speaker and author. So in high school, I ran for president of this organization. My last name is Ship. That's double P like a boat. And I ran for president of this. My slogan was Ship Happens, which is basically all you need to secure a political victory as a high school kid. And I got involved in this organization, I think at first to somehow you know, get positive recognition, you know, to have some good things going on in my life. Organizations called DECA, it's just a high school sort of marketing club, basically for fellow marketing nerds. And I would have to go around to the middle schools and such and give sort of a DECA propaganda talk about how, hey, when you come to the high school, there's all sorts of clubs you should, you can join. And here's why you should consider DECA. And a few of the teachers kind of pulled me aside afterwards and like, hey, the kids really seem to respond to you. Maybe you can come back some other time and you don't have to talk about DECA. You can talk about whatever. So this kind of opened that door. But for the first three years, and maybe this is my counterphobic six nature, I did not ever talk about my past. Ever. Not a word about it. Not an inkling. Not a hint towards it. I mean, you hear how very openly I talk about it now, but not a word about it. And... I got to this point, you know, almost like these moments in a movie where the politician rips up their speech at the podium. I just got to this point where I felt I was being incongruent with these kids, um, not intentionally dishonest, but yet dishonest all the same. And I opened up, I shared my story. I talked a bit about sort of what I went through. And after that, you know, there's just a line of kids, you know, opening up, talking about their challenges that they'd gone through. And so that was a big moment of me of recognizing through my faith, through Rodney and Christine and my counselor, that maybe the very thing that has hurt me the most is the very thing I can use in service of others. By, by using my story with these kids, this next generation, as an inward to get them to self-analyze and self-explore a bit of their own difficulties that they're going through. So I did that for like 10 years and wrote books, 
spoke at huge events, did a documentary series with A&E and Oprah and, you know, sort of all of these things you would ever want to do. And about 10 years ago, I realized I much more enjoyed booking the gig than giving the gig. I enjoyed getting the book deal more than writing the book. I enjoyed piecing together the documentary series more than being the front man of it. And so my work sort of shifted from being the talent to being the talent agent, the person behind the scenes supporting a variety of people that are doing the sort of work that I was doing, but being more of a behind the scenes force of it. And so I don't know if that's part of my counterphobic six nature, or that's just this new season of my life. And as I've gotten older and matured, that I much more so enjoy being the person behind the scenes supporting people that are making a difference with the next generation and the adults that support them. Hmm. Well, you know, it could be all the above, right? I would say that with counterphobic sixes and sixes in general, they often don't like to be in the spotlight because when you're in the spotlight, you're exposed to danger, right? If, if you put a spotlight on one gazelle in the herd, yes, well, you know what I mean? It kind of goes, could you get that spotlight off me? You know, it's like, uh, yes. I, I just don't want to be noted. Uh, so that can sometimes be a thing for sixes. And they're also, you know, sixes are also very community-minded people. They don't, unlike a three, a not very self-aware three, they're not lone wolves, you know? Like, there are people that care about the herd, the community. Yeah, I would feel like after I spoke at these large events, I felt incredibly drained by it. And, I, you know, it was unclear to me how much of that was sort of re-traumatizing my past in the service of the audience and, you know, sort of trying to tell that story and how much of it was maybe I'm on the right bus, but not on the right seat. Man, that's well said. Well, man, this has been a really, really rich conversation man. I have really loved it. It's been, you give me some insights into counterphobic sixes that I didn't have, or you've confirmed some things for me. I mean, you know, at some level, when I first read your bio and stuff, it's like, God, this guy sounds really three or eight. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like it, mm -hmm. it, it, three mm -hmm. or eight. But as you've described your journey right from the beginning, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, this is very counterphobic six. And it has a lot to do with the anxiety piece. Mm -hmm. You know, eights mm -hmm. actually are, uh, very little fear. They're kind of fearless, right? They're aggressive because they're just aggressive. <laughs> but it's not because of fear. You know what I mean? Yes. It's not because of anxiety. Well, it could be a little bit if it's around the issue of betrayal, right? But typically, that's not the, that's not the issue. And you are, it sounds to me, very much in that head triad. In the course of this conversation, you use the word analysis about six or seven times. Oh, sure. I believe that. And so I didn't actually, you know, make little marks on my paper here, but you did. I just noted it. Um, you talked a lot about being up in your head and that's a much more of a five, six, seven kind of phenomenon, you know? And I mean, you know, the work you're doing, man, is so beautiful. And I love what you said, you know, this whole idea of, you know, how do I leverage what I've been through to help others? Because I do actually think sometimes, you know, when I look at on Instagram or I read certain new book titles and I think to myself, oh, my God, you know, there's all this talk about and I don't want to put this down too much, but there's not enough courage. There's a lot of whining. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. I've, I've been through this and I've been through that and then I got attachment problems and I got you know what I mean? And I'm like, I get it. I get it. It really does yes. suck. I get that. However, at some point in the journey, you have to make a turn. 
Yes. And, and the turn must be towards how can I leverage my suffering mm-hmm. for the betterment of the world? Yes. I, I think of this all the time. I, I, mm-hmm. Here's your word, analyze. There's your key word. I analyze this all the time. I think it's about first healing the wound and then revealing the scar. Yes. Now, you have to... You see, this is really good because... What I hear sometimes is people who spend 30 years in therapy and they're still talking like they're in year one. Mm. And I'm like, what? Like you're still whining or you're just stuck. There is a Mm. season to grieve, to be a little more, you know, to focus on yourself, to deal with your issues, to deal with your wounds. But at some moment, man, there's got to be this maturing turn that says, okay, how do I move from being the prodigal to being the father who blesses? How do I move from being someone who's a victim in my mind to someone who is a hero for somebody else? Does that make mm. sense? Oh, yeah. So, you know, and it sounds mm. like you've made that turn very well. Why do, why do people get stuck there? Is it not enough reps in counseling? It's viewing counseling in the wrong light? Man, that's a good question. I think it probably has a lot of different answers. It could be just a function of bad therapy. You know what I mean? Sure. Sometimes a therapist will keep a, it's called infantilizing. You can keep a person mm-hmm. really sort of in the same place. It, it makes for a long-term client. Yeah. Oh, sure. A little you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I remember my, my social worker, Patsy, gave a great word of advice before I entered my first counseling session. She just gave me this little analogy. She said, okay, Josh, imagine you've never worked out in your life. I'm like, okay. Then you go to the gym today and you lift a bunch of weights. The next day, you're going to be incredibly sore, right? I'm like, yeah. And she said, well, you're going to be incredibly sore because you, you did the work. Like, you know, your muscles are going to rebuild and when they do, stronger. And so then she said this to me, don't be surprised if the first five or ten times you leave a counseling session, you leave feeling worse, a.k.a. Yeah. sore. You yeah. leave feeling worse than when you came in. Sure. Because I've seen with a lot of younger folks or even folks in their 20s, 30s, 40s that I know, they dip their toe into counseling. They experience that experience of kind of leaving worse. And then they go, oh, it's not the right counselor. It's not working. This isn't what I need. Instead of viewing it as this is how you get stronger is by going through the soreness and then rebuilding it and rebuilding it right. Yeah. So I had this, uh, and people may have heard me tell this story, but I don't care. I'm going to tell it again. I had this spiritual director. He's an Episcopal monk in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And he, um, oh God, he was amazing. He, one time I was mm-hmm. complaining about my childhood, I think. And again, understand, I don't want people to send me a million emails like, oh, Ian, you were so hard. It's like, no, you didn't hear what I'm saying. I was complaining. I was 50-something. I was complaining about my childhood. I was complaining about recovery. I was complaining about, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he got right up on the camera. We were doing this over uh, online. And he has these little round glasses like mine, but Uh they were like little wire glasses. And he's wearing a monk's cowl. I mean, the whole thing, right? And he looks at me and he goes, in a very stern voice, which was unusual for him, he goes, Hmm. Ian, this is your life. These are the cards what's the invitation here? And what he was saying to me was, it's like, dude, I get it. Your childhood was really sucky. There's a lot of trauma there. These are the cards, right? This is your life. Cards aren't fair, but these are the ones you get dealt. 
But what is the invitation that God is extending to you yes. in the midst of your suffering? What is he calling you to do with it? Yeah. What is next? And I feel like Beautiful. some people just get stuck in the, <laughs> these are the cards phase. This is my yeah. life. These are the cards. And they never get to the invitation in the middle of the pain that says, uh, what can you do with this? How can this pain be used in service to, oh, yes. what, to what God is up to in the world? I mean, that you go back to the notebook I kept as a kid. All of the calculating and analyzing and strategizing and split testing and formulating that I used to do as a kid for the disservice and the, you know, the disbetterment of other people, now I'm doing to serve people. Now I'm doing as a gift to people that don't think like that, that don't yeah. think strategically. Now I'm giving that to them as a healed gift that, that they can use and that I can give to others. Wow. Well, on that note, Josh Ship, counterphobic six author, speaker, person who is has looked pain in the eye uh, and decided to make something better out of it. Uh, man, thank you for being on Typology. Tell people about where they can learn more about you. Tell them about the books. Tell them about all your socials and all that. You, you can just Google me. I'm not here to plug anything. If you want to look into my work, uh, look me up. Josh, Josh Ship or uh, Top You Speakers is the name of our agency. Last year we did... 983 events with uh, different schools and organizations that work with youth or the adults that, that serve and support them. I'm just, I'm just behind the scenes, behind the curtain, just going full nerd and uh, healed notebook on that. Wonderful. Well, listen, man, next time you're in Nashville, give us a holler. We'd love to see you and hang out with you in a setting that's a little bit more relaxed and uh, where enough. we can, can do it, spend a little few more hours unpacking things that matter most to us. Hey, Typology Tribe, remember these words, would you? May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time. <laughs>